0: Thank you, Chris. Uh, As Chris may have said, my name is Ken Stewart, and I am pleased to be with you second week in a row. You did invite me back, by the way, so thank you for that. Uh, But I am with 95 Network, a nonprofit that serves small and mid-sized churches throughout America. Uh, That qualifies as kind of 800 in attendance and below, and that makes up 95% of churches in our land. And uh, we believe that that particular segment of our Big C Church is underserved, under-resourced. And so we exist to resource them and to help them to be more healthy in in their organizational existence so that they might reach their redemptive potential. So that's what I do on my Monday through Friday. But I love coming and serving in the church and being a part of this on Sunday. So again, thank you for having me. Last week we introduced the series, Oh Yeah! And the idea behind this series is that there are some truths in Christendom in our life with Christ as Christ followers that we often overlook if we take a moment to really think about them We say oh, yeah, that's true, but we don't think about it often And so I thought we'd just do a three-week series on a few of those topics last week. We talked about oh, yeah I have a soul I have this part of me that is my very essence that makes up who I am and that God breathed life breathed soul into me And because this is the ultimate gift from God, I should nurture it, I should take care of it, I should take time to appreciate the beauty that is my soul. I have a soul. Oh yeah, I have a soul. And today I want to talk about uh, the next one, and and I need to get right into it because there's a lot to cover, but uh, I want to talk about, oh yeah, it's not about us. And this is always a fun series, or, or a fun message to give, but uh, I, I, like I say, there's a lot to cover in the next few minutes together, so let's dive right a bit, right into this, this reality that if we really pause and think about it, we say, oh yeah, it isn't about us. A few years ago, I had the privilege of marrying a wonderful young couple down at Eastport East Marina. It was on the deck at sunset, so we had the, the Peoria skyline in the background. It was absolutely beautiful. They were both full of hope and promise, and then they had kids. (laughs) Earlier this week, the new mama posted this picture on Facebook with a very short caption. It said, crying for five plus minutes because of toothpaste, for real. Toothpaste. Her daughter didn't just want the toothpaste to brush her teeth. She wanted to eat it for dinner. And when mom didn't see things from her perspective, when the toddler caught yet another glimpse of the fact that the world indeed did not revolve around her, she threw a bit of a tantrum. Uh-huh. Parents, can I get an amen? Have you been there? I absolutely love parent-child illustrations because I believe they nail it. I believe that they nail the, this life that we have as a Christ follower, and we should pay attention our children, they do come about it honestly, do they not? As an infant, their every single need is cared for. And although this isn't true about all, I understand it, but for so many in our culture, they are given gifts and celebrated for every little accomplishment. And as our gener- generation would say today, even for no accomplishment at all. As a teen, they start to get a glimpse of freedom, a freedom they so desperately desire, but they still have no clue just how difficult the world really is. And our job as parents is to love our kids, but our job is also to prepare them for a life out there, to help them to see that the world indeed does not revolve around them, and that's a difficult line to walk most days. Similarly, when life in Christ begins, it honestly and understandably seems like everything is about us. That's the message we send, isn't it? God loves you. Christ died for you so that you might have forgiveness of your sins and so that you might have eternal life. These are all true statements. I'm not debating them in the least. But do you see how we might get the message mixed up early on and think that this story, his story, is about us? Do you see how and why we get upset some days when God doesn't give us our every desire, especially when we ask for toothpaste for dinner? Today's message is simply a reminder for some, but it may be a revelation for others. It's such an easy message. Oh, yeah, it's not about us. So, everybody say, yippee, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's start by walking through the story of Joseph, yeah? This is the guy with the Technicolor dream coat. And I'm going to cover, what is that, 13, 14 chapters of the Old Testament, and we're going to do it in just a few minutes, so bear with me as I rapidly take you through the story of Joseph. Joseph was their father, Jacob's favorite of 12 sons. His richly ornamented robe, as it is put in the Scriptures, is mentioned right off the bat, a gift from father to favored son. The love fest between them ran so thick that the other boys hated Joseph, Couldn't even say a kind word to him or about him. It was an ugly scene in the family. To make matters worse, Joseph had a dream that made him look really good and the others not so much. Now, I'm not quite sure why, but Joseph thought it would be okay to tell his brothers about this dream, which, of course, made them all the more angry. Then he had another similar dream, told them again, same result. These dreams had serious implications if they were to come true. They basically indicated that all the brothers would one day bow down before Joseph and that he would rule over them. Even dad rebuked Joseph after that last one. He couldn't imagine such a day would come where he and the missus would have to bow down to a son. The brothers were so jealous. They plotted to kill Joseph. They eventually took a less dramatic route and simply sold him into slavery. No big deal. But they dipped that shiny coat of his in goat's blood and convinced dear old dad that Joseph, his most beloved son, was dead. Jacob didn't take the news very well at all. He mourned for days and refused to be consoled. Joseph was sold to a guy named Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. As the Bible often says during this incredible story over and over again, and I quote, the Lord was with Joseph and everything he did prospered. Potiphar gave him literally full control over everything in his household. He had earned that much respect. And in Genesis 39, verses six and seven, one of those stories in the Old Testament that we don't read very closely very often, but but it says right in there, now Joseph was well built and handsome. So just imagine Joseph, well built and handsome, ruling over this household of Potiphar. And in verse seven, here comes the punch, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said in PG voice, come to bed with me. He of course did the honorable thing. He refused and he fled, but he left his cloak behind. She cried, wolf, Joseph goes to the dungeon. He was there for a long time, years. Years, but the Lord's hand was upon him there as well. Joseph was so well regarded that he was given charge of the entire prison system by the warden. I I kid you not, that's exactly what happened. It's weird, I know, but hey. He interprets a couple of dreams while he's doing all this dungeon leadership stuff. They come true, and one was for the king's cupbearer, who would eventually return to his duties at Pharaoh's side, enter Joseph to the king's chambers, because two years later, Pharaoh had a couple dreams of his own. He does such an amazing job interpreting the dreams, giving God complete and total credit, by the way, that Pharaoh decides to appoint Joseph as his number one. I'm not making this up, folks. He went from dungeon to dictator, benevolent, though he may have been, almost literally overnight. Pharaoh gave him full control. He didn't even want to have a say in what was about to happen. The story is quite rich. You should read it sometime. Pharaoh's dreams predicted seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. Joseph's charge was to do whatever it took to prepare for those seven years of famine, and what he said basically was law. Joseph's charge was to take care of the people. And when famine had been in the land for some time, Jacob sent ten of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And when they arrived in Egypt, you guessed it, you followed the story, they bowed down low to the man that was large and in charge, their brother, Joseph. His dreams had come true. Eventually, through a lot of drama, the family is reunited and the entire clan moves to Goshen, a local hotspot for shepherding families. Seriously, this is a great story, and there's absolutely no way to do it justice in this short time this morning. There is so much we can learn from this passage. But I want to bring it back to the context of our series a moment and just play it out as a reminder to us all, oh yeah, it's not about us. But let's remember that as we do so, we do so with the advantage of hindsight. That we can look back on this story with 2020 vision. We can see things that you cannot see when you're in the midst of it. Let's just acknowledge that. The interpretation and subsequently the message of this story really depends on your perspective. And that's what I want to do right now is I want to break down four distinct perspectives that are going on here. Four completely unique experiences within the same story. And the version of the story that you get really depends on who you ask. The first major perspective is that of Joseph. Joseph lived the story. He was the eternal optimist. The Lord was with him wherever he went and he could see the glory of the Lord all around him. That was the source of his optimism. He still suffered greatly. The rejection of his brothers and his own family. Separation from them the life of a slave. And he was desperate to get out of the dungeon if you read the story closely. But even so, you get the sense that he approached each day holding God's hand, doing whatever he was tasked to do, maintaining his integrity, and holding on to a hope for tomorrow. He had a centered, hopeful, faithful countenance about him. That was Joseph's perspective. How about the perspective of the 10 brothers? The story ended by their hands. They were spiteful, jealous, and almost inexplicably evil to their brother. The end of their brother's life was on their conscience. Their father's intense sorrow weighed on them. They never forgot about it. Whenever they would tell the story of their family, Joseph was always referred to in the scriptures as the one who is no more. And then there's the perspective of their father, Joseph. Jacob, I'm sorry. Their father, Jacob. To him, the story was dead and gone, never to be embraced again. He suffered intensely for days, for months, and for even years. There was no comforting him, no consolation, and no recovery. In his own words, he said, In mourning, I will go down to the grave to my son. And then, there's the perspective of God himself. To God, this story is beautiful, amazing actually, and it served a grand purpose. Every turn meant something, every character played a necessary role. The entire story was beyond any one of the character's scope of comprehension. No one could have written the script with all its twists and turns and drama, but Joseph summed it up for his brothers in chapter 45 and 50. He said this, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, not just his family. But God used Joseph to save what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. He saved the lives of an entire nation of people and Egyptians. Think with me for a moment about how completely different the story of Joseph would be depending on who's telling it. So let's look at it purely from Jacob's perspective. This is the perspective of the father. And we're going to look at it prior to the second year of famine. His favored son, the one he had recently rebuked for some strange dream, was dead, ravaged by wild animals. That's all he knew for well over a decade. The story of Joseph had ended, and all hope for anything different was lost. As far as Jacob is concerned, this is a very sad and very short story. And this is more often than not our perspective when bad things happen in our lives. I'd like for us to take a quick look at this idea of perspective and how it influences our own versions of the reality that we live every single day. Because I think it will help us in those times when life inevitably takes a turn for the worse. When we get twisted into knots because we think that this story is about us. The first note that I'd like to make about perspective is that our perspective is limited and it is incomplete. It is limited and it is incomplete. We can only see what is directly in our line of sight. We can only hear what is within the reach of our ears. We can only feel what is within our reach. That is the full extent of our experience in any given situation. Even minor, simple changes can throw things completely off and can change our version of reality completely. This is an old reference, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Dead Poets Society. There's an old Robin Williams movie and basically his message to his students in this particular part of the movie, when he had them get up on top of their desks and how just raising themselves up about two and a half feet in the room changed their entire perspective on everything that was around them. Now I'm not gonna do that to you today. But it'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, not? For us all to get up and stand on our chairs and experience the rest of the service from that perspective. It would be different, I tell you. I think also of, I I used to be a a skate guard in a roller rink. Yeah, I had a whistle, everything. (laughs) But anytime you'd go skating, I did this a lot as a kid, um, it'd, it'd be great, and then you'd take your skates off and you'd be like, wait a minute, what just happened? I'm down three more inches and it feels a lot different. All I did was take my skates off and everything feels just a little bit different. I think, uh, my daughter played a lot of sports, I played a lot of sports. I think of the, the uh, perspective difference between a coach and a player and a parent. All three experience practices and games in a completely different way. A coach sees virtually everything that's going on on the field or on the court And tries to make wise decisions based on everything that he knows and everything that he or she has seen and practices and that's a really tough scope but I guarantee you the parents don't have the same perspective they want to know why Johnny or Jane isn't playing and of course Johnny and Jane feel the same way and I recently have donned the stripes and got another whistle and I'm refereeing basketball games And I'm telling you, it's a completely different perspective yet again. And parents don't share my perspective. (laughs) Our perspective is limited, and it isn't complete. Secondly, our perspective is particular, and it is selfish. Our experience in this life is unique to us. Our experiences are shaped by so much more than the circumstances of the moment. Our eyes, ears, and hearts have filters, we have resistors, and sometimes even all-out roadblocks or blinders that prevent us from seeing purely. Our perspective of reality is inherently selfish because it is based entirely on our uniquely personal interpretation of the so-called facts. It is influenced by our childhood, our education, our entertainment choices, our health, our political views, our reading lists, our friends and family, our church affiliation, our emotional state, and on and on and on and on. All of these things contribute to the way that we see and experience life and therefore the way we interpret things, our perspective. Think of this again, those of you that are parents, when your child gets up on the stage for the first time, any stage and how a parent gushes over that performance. And some of us are like, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? But you and I don't realize that 10 minutes before the performance, that kid was crying and scared to death about going out on whatever that stage was, and that parent is celebrating the victory of overcoming that fear. That's a different perspective. My daughter recently got her license. She's 17 now, so it's been over a year, but I I remember when she first moved into the driver's seat and I moved over to the passenger seat. It's a different perspective. (laughs) And for her, she had been in the back seat for 16 years. And now she's in the driver's seat and I say, okay, take us to X. And she's like, how do I get there? You've been going there for the last five years in the back seat. You surely can figure out how to get there wherever there was. Different perspective. Back when she was in the back seat, she didn't care. She didn't pay attention to what turn we made, what direction we were going, what was going on around her. She didn't have to. Now she does. It's a different perspective. Our perspective is particular and it's selfish. Thirdly, our perspective is biased and it's powerful. We are a bit partial to our own opinion. Would you not agree? It's understandable that we're biased in this way. Our personal perspective has an incredible hold on us. It's almost impossible to give it up. To do so would take an admission of our own faults and failures and shortcomings and the elevation of something beyond our own understanding. And we don't do that very well. So we hold on tightly even when we know we're wrong. You've all seen it, logic goes out the window, emotion rules. There's a reason that religion and politics are not discussed at dinner parties. Here's the deal, in light of these three realities and more on perspective, as Christians, as followers of Christ, as seekers of God, we must be willing to do exactly what does not come natural to us, We must willingly die to our own perspectives. The Bible says that we must die to ourselves. Same thing. And we must hold on to the hope of a perspective that is beyond what we can even comprehend some days. The hope that only God's perspective can give. The hope that can only come when we realize that this story is not about us. I'd like you to take you to a, another famous story in the Bible. We are, of course, in the, the Lenten time frame as we head into Easter. And as such, as we prepare for that time, I'd like to take us quickly through the story of Holy Week. That can be found in John chapters 12 through 19. It starts on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a grand celebration. Jesus spends the week preaching and teaching and praying and serving He's hanging hanging out with his homeboys, doing his best to let them know that their world, as they know it, is just about to blow up. Read the story, folks. He tells them time and time and time again. Things are going to change here in a moment, and they don't get it. They can't, they can't wrap their minds around it. They don't know what Jesus is saying. Thursday night, they celebrate the Passover with dinner together. And then they take their usual post-dinner walk to the Mount of Olives. And that's when they get the call. You know, the call? Not the calling, the call. The call that every one of us dreads. The call that we know once that call is done, our life will change forevermore and it doesn't feel like it's for the better. Over the next 12 to 18 hours, Jesus is taken into custody, he is put on trial multiple times. He is beaten within inches of his death. He is hung on a cross. A spear is thrust into his side just below his ribcage, and he is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, dead. He's placed in a tomb. The stone is rolled into place. Game over. The story is ended. So let's play this game quickly again, and let's look at four different perspectives. The first perspective is that of Jesus himself. He lived the story. He trusted the Father, though even he would have changed the outcome, even the path if he could. Again, read the story. He did not want to go down that path. He asked the Father to take this cup from him. He suffered greatly. He bled and he died. But he did his Father's will walking in his literal presence by the power of the Holy Spirit every step of the way, hand in hand with God. That was the perspective of Jesus. Another perspective that we can see in this story is the perspective of the crowd. The story ended by their hands. They turned spiteful and jealous and almost inexplicably evil in a very short time frame. The ones that were throwing palm branches now were now calling for Christ to be crucified. The end of Jesus' life was on their hands. And we see later in the second chapter of Acts, specifically, that this reality weighed heavily on them. And then there's the perspective of the disciples. These are the ones that knew Jesus. To them, the story was dead and gone, never to be embraced again. They suffered intensely. They walked around practically in a fog. Many had gone into hiding. There was no comforting them, no consolation, and no path to recovery. And then again, we come to the perspective of God himself. Well, you'll need to tune in Easter Sunday for a lot of the details, and that's coming up in three weeks. But the story, eventually, is beautiful Amazing, actually, and it served a grand purpose. Every turn meant something. Every character played a necessary role. The entire story was beyond any one character's scope of comprehension. No one could have written the script with all its twists, turns, and drama. As we saw earlier with Jacob, the perspective of the disciples is often where you and I land when the hard stuff hits. The story seems to have died we lose hope, we suffer intensely, we go into a fog, we hide, there is no comforting or consoling us, and we can't see a way out. At the risk of sounding like I'm belittling very real hardships in our lives, which I'm not, it's as if God is telling us, no, you can't have toothpaste for dinner. And this is... What I'm about to say next, folks, if there's anything that you take away from what we're talking about today, it should be this, because I believe it's key to everything we are discussing. It is before we find ourselves in this place, this place of hardship, that we absolutely must understand this truth of perspective that we're talking about today before we get there. We need to tie it like a lifeline around our hearts so that it won't break free even when we lose the strength to hold on anymore ourselves. Because here's the money line. If we cultivate a godly perspective in the good times, we can find hope when we most need it in the hard times. Let me repeat that. If we cultivate a godly perspective in the good times, we can find hope when we most need it in the hard times. Friends, sometimes the story doesn't make sense. Sometimes the smaller storyline in the greater story takes a hard turn. Sometimes it honestly feels like the story has ended and that all hope is lost. And it's in those times that there is no room for platitudes or kitschy phrases or well-meaning Bible verses or empty promises or pious explanations. They don't work there. We must allow for grieving and lament and sorrow and mourning. These emotions and actions are justified. They make sense. They're appropriate. They're healthy, and they simply need to be. And it's in those times that we must let our relatively silent hope rest in this bedrock truth that we have cultivated in the better times. The truth that God is still crafting his story. And the hard, humbling message is that his story is not about us. It's about him. And it is to his glory and his honor not our own. Would you please pray with me? Gracious Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this day. This day that allowed us to get up out of our beds, to breathe the air, to be a part of your community this morning in worship, to hear a message from your word and and hopefully, Father, to put our lives in a little bit more perspective. As we wrestle with this truth, Father, help us to feel loved, help us to know how much you do love us, and how much you do want to call us into your fold. While at the same time, Father, growing in our maturity and realizing that the story is much bigger than us. And that you, Father, are the omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign Lord. And that we live and work and serve in your kingdom. Not our own we love you and we praise you it's in Jesus name we pray amen all right we said the uh, first service it was okay for me to wear a t-shirt up here uh, but uh, one of the things I did in my previous pastor we did a number of t-shirts for different uh, things that we would want to promote and This message is so close to my heart that uh, I wanted t-shirts made and my only regret was I didn't make more so I could give them out to people. Uh, But this this story is really not about us. And there's a part of the crying toddler story that I haven't told you yet that I, I think kind of brings a little more detail and context and also brings our point home. You see, there's something happening in her little kingdom that she cannot fathom. She has no way of understanding it and there is no expectation at all that she should even have to deal with it. You see, that picture was taken on Wednesday. And two days before that, on Monday, her mother had surgery to remove a port that was in her chest, a port that is used to administer chemotherapy treatments, treatments for breast cancer. But hey, she wanted toothpaste it just puts in perspective this reality that there is so much that is going on beyond what we can comprehend or understand, more than we can fathom, that we have no way of understanding and in some cases that you and I shouldn't even have to deal with. It does, it's not a matter of chronolo- chronological age or wisdom. It is the fact that God is so much greater and so much bigger and the world that he has created, his kingdom is beyond our understanding in more ways than I could even talk about this morning. And it is in in embracing this reality that we can live lives of true humility. That is also where we can live lives of inexplicable joy as children, as we are called to in the New Testament to embrace the life of a child, trusting in the creator and the sustainer of life for literally everything. Peace be with you. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Thanks for being here today.